moving forward. There you go. All right, we started last week uh, getting in our study into the book of Acts as we look at uh, this inspired account of God's work uh, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit, you know, carrying out the divine plan upon the earth. And so after having introduced the apostles, as we talked about last week, uh, the apostles who were with Jesus, you know, after his resurrection, in those last days while Jesus was on earth, Luke then, you know, kind of he, he brings us this second account that is written to Theophilus uh, uh, to give this defense, this uh, account of the proclamation of the gospel of God beginning in Jerusalem. And we emphasize, for example, last week the idea of verse 8 of chapter 1 serves very much as an outline of how the book of Acts is laid out. And so the first chapters in Acts focus in Jerusalem, and that's where we are today. And so during this remaining 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost is where, you know, is where we are picking up. You know, there in verse 15, and I, I divided you know, the chapter this way because I felt that the you know, replacement of Judas is really a precursor to the events they unfold in chapter 2. And so you know, what we have here is you know, the choosing of Matthias. And once again, we are in Jerusalem somewhere when you have this gathering of how many people? 120, 120 people, you see there in verse, verse 15. And as these things are about to unfold, I think it's important for you to realize that uh, this idea of power being associated with the baptism of the apostles with the Holy Spirit uh, is also associated with the kingdom. For example, in Mark 9, verse 1, you know, that was on the previous slide, Jesus, early on in his ministry, said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so there's, there's power associated with the coming of the Spirit and the work that he is doing and how the Spirit is very much alive and active in God's great scheme of things but also this power associated with the kingdom. So there's kind of both uh, two threads, pretty predominant threads, that run through the book of Acts, and that is one is the work of the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, and how he does these different things. The other thread that is also running through the book of Acts is the idea of the kingdom. Who is the king? You know, who makes up the kingdom? And so that's part of what you need to be seeing here as Luke is giving a defense for the gospel. He's giving a defense for the work of God through the Son and the Spirit. He's giving a defense for the people of God. He's giving a defense for salvation is open to all. And so here in chapter 1, in verse 15, as you have you know, sometime, sometime a few days before Pentecost... You have, you know, Matthias is going to be chosen as the, the next apostle. And it's, it's in a gathering of 120 people. And very quickly, I'm going to just th throw out, you know, do the first three questions. You know, you know, 
I tend not to go through all the questions with you. You know, you're not first graders. Uh, and so, but I know, you know, you know, you know I kind of have a tendency just to have you, you know, do it and expect you to do it, you know, surprisingly. I expect you to do it because basically it's just a help in your study. That's really what it is. It's helped you as you're reading, look for different things. But let's kind of very quickly do the first three questions and we'll get into our text. And question one, it says, what did David prophesy about Judas? Someone tell me, what did David prophesy about Judas? You got to yell it out. Huh? He would betray Christ. What else? Yeah, he would be their guide. There's a number of things we're told that he he did. He betray. He would be their guide. You know, to you know, taking of Jesus. What else about did David prophesy? Talked about his office. You know, the idea of his homestead would become desolate, and someone else would take his spot. And so it's interesting. So that's, that's what's going to, Peter is going to talk about to this assembly, you know, somewhere in Jerusalem, you know, and the fact that, okay, we've got to replace Judas because of this. Uh, another question, question two, what were the qualifications for one to replace Judas? What are the qualifications to be an apostle based upon what you know, Peter is saying here? Has he have been with the Lord for how long? From the beginning, uh, starting with the baptism, all the way to what? His ascension. All right? So it had to be a disciple who wasn't yet an apostle, but who has been with Jesus from those two you know, kind of bookmarks, book, book ends here. All right? And, and he had to do that for the reason that he would become what with the, the other 11? A witness. If you're going to be a witness for Jesus and a witness for his resurrection, you have to have been with him from the time of his baptism all the way to the time of, of his ascension. All right? Question three, he says, who, you know, who actually chose Matthias to be an apostle? God did. And you see that unfolding at the end of chapter one, where they, made, you know, they did the best they could according to their judgment uh, as they look at the character of the disciples among them who kind of fit this criteria, and then they put it in the Lord's hands. Yeah. So let's kind of talk a little bit about the text. You think about here's Peter you know, with assembly. He initiates the selection process of Judas Iscariot's replacement. He talks a little bit about you know, who he is, this betrayer, this guide, you know, what happens to him. you got Matthew's account. You know, if your margin of reference doesn't have this, Matthew 27 gives you the other account describing the death uh, of Judas and what happens to him. There's a little bit variation, but you put the two together, you get the full picture of how he died and then what happened to his body you know, and then what did they do with the money that he returned. So you think about this idea of what Peter does, this initiating. Now, this is before the day of Pentecost. So this means this is before what happened to the apostles. The Holy Spirit. It's before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Peter here, initiating the selection, you know, says, okay, we need to do this because David prophesied about this. How did, P, how did Peter figure out you know, 
that Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 was talking about Judas. How did he figure this out? This is just, you know, uh, trying to use some reason, some logic. It's before he, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is, according to Jesus' promise in John, would help them remember everything. So that hasn't happened yet. You know, help them testify. That hasn't happened yet. And help them to guide them into all truth. Well, the Spirit hasn't come on them yet. So those things aren't going to begin at Pentecost. So how did Peter know? Let me take, for example, very quickly, let me read a portion of Psalm 69. So I'm going to read 69, 22 through 26. Yeah, it says, this is a Psalm of David. Both of these Psalms are Psalms of David where David is calling upon God, upon Jehovah, to execute justice against whom? What kind of group of people? What kind of people? He's asking God to be the judge against some people. You know? There's no, he doesn't list any specifically, but basically it's wicked oppressors. It's enemies. That's, you know, so that's the context of both of these psalms. And look at what he says here, verse 22. David writes, May their table be before them become a snare. He's talking about, God, please make this happen. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. Pretty strong words by God's anointed one here. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation, God's indignation, on them and may, you, may your burning anger overtake them. And here's verse 25. This is what, is what Peter quotes. May their camp be desolate. You may have a little different word there. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. How would Peter know? Verse 25, this vague reference about you know, judgment of God coming upon somebody, and you know, may his camp or homestead be desolate, and may someone else dwell there. Yes. Yeah, and you go back to Acts 1. You, know, you, got this, you got this time period where Jesus is with him. So it is logical to note the consideration that the, there's a strong possibility that the reason Peter knows this is not because he's been baptized with the Spirit yet, but, but rather because he, they have been with Jesus for 40 days. Jesus has been talking to them about the kingdom He's been talking about the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit. He has been talking to them about the Scriptures, opening up their Scriptures so they could understand. And the same thing, when you look at Psalm, Psalm 109, verse 8, it's another vague reference. You know, how would Peter or any of us really know that these vague references you know, was a prophecy of David about what's going to happen to Judas and who's going to replace that? And so the probability, I would suggest, is that sometime during that time period, Jesus talked about this on some level. Do I know? No, I don't. Yeah, but Jesus opened their minds, helped them understand the scriptures, talked about the kingdom, talked about the coming of the Spirit. Carrie. And I guess as I'm reading this, and 
you know, thinking about it, I'm not sure that's any different than the way we do it. Because there's nothing miraculous. It's just as we read scripture, we're connecting the dots and we're able to reason based on scripture Mm -hmm. how a scripture may apply to a such situation. So nothing miraculous here. Okay, right. Yeah, uh, and so, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't, like I said, like Carrie, I don't believe this is a miraculous thing, but I think there has been some reasoning, and, and of course, I lean to the idea that there has been help, you know, you know, from Jesus previously that's helped them to come to this understanding, come to this reasoning ability. I'm just thinking of another possibility. <laughs> you know, even Caiaphas, a wicked Caiaphas, prophesied, mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. Yes. And so he could have done the same with Peter before he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. That, that is an option. Just You're a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so there's a number of things you can consider. How did Peter understand this? But the point is the spirit that is guiding Luke to record the events that, that unfolded says this is what Peter did. He initiated this, uh, uh, this process of selection and he explained, you know, you know, what has happened and what must take place. And so you have the replacement you know, coming into play. And it's, it's Peter that says, has to be someone that has been with Jesus all this time so that they can be a true eyewitness of the resurrection. And so the group, the apostles and the rest of the ones in that group, they selected two. They selected Judas and Matthias. So those are the two disciples that they put forward, you know, that in their judgment, you know, fit the, uh, the qualifications. They had, been, they had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism up to the time of his ascension. And so in turn, they, they likewise were witnesses of the fact that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And just for a moment, just kind of throw out a couple of suggestions. Think of that idea of what that, that means. You know, in a very practical sense. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 6, in Luke chapter 6, 13, is Luke's account of the selection of the apostles uh, at first by Jesus Christ. When Judas is named among the 12. And so this is Luke chapter 6. And in verse 13, it tells us that Jesus called together the disciples. He called together his disciples and from them... He chose 12. From them, he chose 12. And so you know, it's reasonable to suggest and ponder, well, Judas and Matthias were in that number. But they, but they weren't picked the first time. Or you think about in Mark, Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, it's Mark's account of you know, Jesus on the sea and storm, you know, calming the storm. You know, calming the storm. And in verse 40, no, excuse me, 36. In verse 36, who else is out on that water in this story? In verse 36, who's else, who else is out on that water? It says, other boats. There wasn't just one boat on the stormy sea, according to Mark's account. So could Justice and Matthias have been there 
One more just example to illustrate that there's a practical aspect. He says, okay, they were with Jesus between this whole time period during the ministry. Uh, you think about in Luke 8, Luke 8, it's Luke's account of the kind of the parables. You know, Matthew's kind of got his section, Luke's got his section. And so in Luke chapter 8, you know, you know, you've got you know, the begin, you know, beginning of the record of Jesus teaching the parables. And, uh, and so it starts with the parable of the sower or the parable of the soil, however you, you describe that. And in verse 9, it says, His disciples questioned him as to what this parable meant. Now, all, all apostles were disciples. All the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. And so you can think about all the different places where you're talking about the disciples who are with Jesus. There's times that you know, the scripture is very specific about the 12 or who of the 12. You know, take, for example, when, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there was very specific about who, who among that group he pulled aside a little farther away from the rest. You know, there's times the scripture is very plain about those kind of things. Or the Mount of Transfiguration. But in other places, you've got this general description of disciples are with Jesus. And so you think about what's going on here. This is all part of God's plan, God's work, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together so that the kingdom is proclaimed, the kingdom is established, and salvation is offered to the world. And so chapter 1 ends with this prayerful request that the Lord make the final decision. You know, as they choose to basically cast lots, throw dice, he says, but Lord, you decide. You know, you know, and so they recognize we've done the best judgment that we could make. You know, and now, Lord, you know these men better than we do. You know their hearts. And so Luke says, the lot fell on Matthias, and he becomes numbered among the apostles. So he's added to the 11. And so they're back up to 12 apostles. And so that, all of that, is, to me, is just a precursor to the big event of Acts 2. You know, you know you've got to get you know, to this fact. You've got, you know, Jesus chose the first 12. Jesus chose Matthias. And Jesus is going to be the one who chooses Saul. Jesus did the choosing of those he sent out to be his eyewitnesses. Before we get into chapter chapter one, chapter two, excuse me, I want to just kind of get you to connect what's happening here in chapter one and chapter two of Luke with Luke twenty-four. When you got Luke's account of the Great Commission, you got you know, so you got these events unfolding on the day of Pentecost, and what's unfolding on the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of what Jesus talked about. You know at the end of Luke or at the end of Matthew or Mark. Uh, and so in Luke's account, there are three things that he mentions in his record of the Great Commission. And all three things that he talks about in Luke 24, so this would be kind of verses you know, 45 through you know, 49 or 50. So that section of Luke, that's the Great Commission. There's three big things you know, Jesus you know, talked about. And so Luke records that, and then Luke recorded in the second account to Theophilus, 
the unfolding of those. The one is the Father's promise you know, that's going to come upon the apostles. You know, Jesus talked about that. Luke wrote about that in the, in the book of Luke, and he writes about it in the, in the book of Acts as well. So that's, the, that's, you know, that's one thing. The second thing, the idea of his death and resurrection according to Scripture. You know, you know, in, in Luke 24, it talked about it, those things must be fulfilled. Those things must be fulfilled. And he talked about his death and his resurrection in, in the Great Commission. Well, what, what, what do they preach about in Acts 2? They preach about the death and the resurrection. And then thirdly, you know, in Luke 24, it talks about how repentance and forgiveness must be proclaimed to all nations. You know, what else do the apostles preach about? You know, you know, they preach about or explain the Father's promise. They preach about the death, you know, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they preach repentance and forgiveness. And so chapter 2 is, is very pivotal in seeing God's scheme, God's plan of redemption and salvation and the establishment of his kingdom, his people you know, from all nations that would be with him eternally one day. You know, it's all kind of opening up here, unfolding, you know, in, like I say, in a sense, with a big splash. And so you begin in, in chapter 2 with the Father's promise being fulfilled. And so the idea of the, you know, here is the, you got the, you've got the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. Okay, and so you know, those apostles include Matthias here. And so you have the 11 plus Matthias as chapter 1 ends in Acts and so in verse 2, I mean, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, as the, the, the account continues, this is where perhaps the chapter division is, is slightly a hindrance to see the flow of the text. Because it says, you know, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Who's the they? These were one of your questions. Who's the they of chapter 2, verse 1? It's the 12 apostles. You, know, you, need, you need to see, it's, it, 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 you know, the account begins in, at the end of chapter 1, and it continues into chapter 2. You know, so it says in verse 26, They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. See, And so that's where, yes, you know, what's happening in chapter 2 is, 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 is huge, and it's... You know, uh, Time-wise, it's sometime after the selection, the process of putting Matthias into the office of an apostle in that ministry. So at some point, how many days? You know, we don't know. But sometime after that. But the, you know, you know, Luke is not so concerned about you know, giving you a, a chronological you know, de definitive time here. This is many days here. This is many days there. You know, no, he's more concerned to give you the context of what's really going on, you know, that brings, you know, the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness to the world. And so you have the promise being fulfilled here in the first verses of chapter 2. It's in Jerusalem. It's on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost would, co would coincide with what's called the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, not the Feast of Booths. I, try, I may have said booths last week. 
you know, it, those are two, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths are two separate things. Uh, but, and so you can go back, Leviticus chapter 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy chapter 16, all talk about the Feast of Weeks and counting seven weeks, you know, and it being on the 50th day. And so those three accounts, you know, Leviticus 23, 15 through 21, if you're wanting to write that down. Uh, you cross-reference that with Numbers 28, 26 through 31. And then Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 through 12. So that's 23, 28, 16 of those three books. And, of course, they're not concerned about, okay, so much the, you know, what's, what the Jews are doing that day. What they're concerned about is what the Spirit is doing this day. So it tells us what day... You know, and, he, and how that fits with what Jesus said, not many days from now, this is going to happen. And so what you see here is providence of God. You see God's plan unfolding perfectly. And so in the manifestation of the Spirit's presence, there are three big things that show power. You know, and this is divine power. And so you begin with the sound of a great wind. It didn't say it was a great wind. It was the sound of a great wind. And then secondly, you got these tongues as of fire resting upon each apostle. So that's 12 men. Yeah. You know, so on each of them, these tongues as of fire rest upon them. And then they all begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit is directing them about the mighty deeds of God. That's verse 11. And so those are the three, three big things that, that you know, shows the manifestation of power. Remember what Jesus said? Not many days from now, you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you're gonna receive power. And so you got power being manifested and this power is indicating the presence of God. So when God presents himself in some unique way, yeah. He manifests himself. Take, for example, you know, Mount Sinai. When God gave the law to Israel through Moses, you know, what, was, what was there? There was audio. There was visual. They had all of these things that were indication of power. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. The Spirit has been sent by Jesus Christ to immerse the holy apostles, and he, he chooses to do it on the day of Pentecost. And when this happens, it's done with the, with the manifestation of power. And it says that, you know, and, and so this, this catches everybody's attention. And, they're all, and so you've got this large crowd gathering. And it says, and so they're gathering, it says, it came, they all came, you know, you know to this this house, because it, this, this power filled the whole house where they were sitting, all right? And so you got this large crowd coming to where the apostles are. Uh, and so where is this house in probability? You know, is this an ordinary house of a Jew? You know, what, what could have sustained the size crowd that gathered. Most scholars would, would suggest that you're talking about they were at, in the courts of the house of the Lord. The temple had courts around it. And so you can't, it's not great, but you think about, uh, oh, that's not what I wanted. 
you know, uh, get my pointer here. Anyway, uh, there in the middle of the map, you know, on the right side, you've got this one square. It indicates, you know, basically in the middle of that big square, you've got the sanctuary itself, and around those, got a number of the squares around it, and those are courts. Now, that's what's suggested, you know, we, you know, you know that that could have sustained a large gathering of people, you know, but once again, that's not the emphasis, you know, that's not supposed to be our focus. You know, that, that's interesting, you know, to try to, you know, you know, kind of look at some of these, but that's not the focus. The focus is not exactly where they are, but the fact that this is what happened, and this is God at work. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together to, to fulfill the great proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and as a result, it talks about how these Jews come together. And in the city, these Jews are from where? Where are these Jews from in the city of Jerusalem? They're just from everywhere. You got, you know, and so you've got a list of nations that represent that represented where these Jews are from. And you've got some from the east, you've got some from the west, some from the south, some from the north. You know, Rome would have been in the continent, you know, that was the continent of Europe. And so you've got Jews who have come down from the region of Rome that are here as well. And so you think about, you've got you know, Europe represented, you've got Asia represented, you've got Africa represented, you've got all these different areas represented who are all here. And why are these Jews in Jerusalem? It tells you why, verse 1. Pentecost, it's the Feast of Weeks. It is one of the three annual required uh, feasts that you know, says all males are to come to these three feasts, and the Feast of Weeks is one of those. And so that's why you got these people represented, and so they, 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 they hear the sound, and they, 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 they all gather together. They see what's, you know, what's resting on top of these 12 apostles, you know, and they're, they're speaking you know, you know, from the, the languages from where, they, where they're from, and they're understanding them. And so, you know, they, they are just amazed. Look, you know, and in verse 12, you got the first of two very important questions that are asked. Two, one of the two most important questions that all of us needs to ask. When they say, what does this mean? And Peter with the 11, he takes the, he takes the lead. He's going to answer that question. You know, what does this mean that you've got this sound of a great wind, you've got these tongues as a fire resting on, on the apostles, and they're all speaking these unlearned languages by the power, by the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know, what does this mean? And we need to ask that ourselves. What does this mean? And what this means is, this is God at work. And God at work to offer salvation to the world. You, know, you think about, uh, you know, with each of your questions, I've chosen kind of a key verse. Last week was chap you know, ver chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses in these places. You know, this, this week I chose verse 36, 
when he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does this mean? Yeah. What this means is God has revealed to you your Messiah, your Lord, and salvation is now accessible to everyone. And so Peter begins to explain what this means. You know, and so you think of that idea of how he's, he, you know, he's, they've gotten their attention. <laughs> the crowd has come together, and you've got people who are asking sincerely, what does it mean? Now, you got in that group, you're gonna, always going to have some opposition, some criticism, and sure enough, it's there, it's present. And it's interesting to me that um, Peter really doesn't uh, deal with that. You know, you know, almost, to me, it's almost like he brushes it aside, and he does answer it, but he almost answers it with a bit of humor. <laughs> you know, just to the ideas, you know, the, perhaps a little bit of the ridiculousness of you to even hint at that. And so you got Peter, you know, getting up and he's going to say, okay, you know, you know, the mockers, you're just mistaken. <laughs> you know, you just got it all wrong. Let me tell you what this means. And to me, it's also interesting to think about there's two times as Peter is presenting this amazing account in Acts chapter 2. There's two times he challenges his audience to listen. You see it in verse 14 when he starts with the explanation of the work of the Spirit. When he says, give heed to my words. Give heed to my words. Why are the words so important? Say it. Because, um, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> because, because a lot of people think that baptism is irrelevant uh-huh. and that, that it doesn't exist. And, Jesus, and here is Peter saying... Yes, you must repent. You must be baptized. You must do it this way. You must be buried with Christ and arose again. And it's very important that these people know this because at this time, um, there was a lot of Jewish leaders and stuff saying, well, Jesus was not the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Jesus was just an ordinary man, and he didn't do anything. And it's very important that we understand these these Christians that broke bread and, and did everything this is the foundation of the church. And so this yeah. is the Lord. Yeah, so, so the words, like I say, the, the signal of the words is because there's power in those words. And those words are coming not from Peter, but they're coming from above. And so everything that's gonna, that he's going to expound on are, is not merely the words of men, but it is truly the words of God, as Paul actually uses that expression in his Thessalonian letter. You know, how the Thessalonians understood when Paul preached to them, you know, and did so powerfully, they saw and heard what it really was. And so Peter says, you need to give heed to my words, not just to what's, what you're seeing. Listen to what I'm about to say. And again, he's going to say that again when he comes to his testifying of Christ. In verse 22, he says, listen again to these words. So he, you need to listen to my explanation of what you're seeing and hearing, and now you need to listen to the, the application of all of this. Sam. Salvation comes by listening to the word of God and obeying it, not by waiting for a miraculous dispensation of some kind. 
Right, right. And so, so, you, so they're going to be saved. The Spirit is very much part of this, and he is very much alive and active in this, but the words that the Spirit is guiding Peter and the other 11 to speak now, that's, that's the power of God for salvation, and so he's challenging, listen to what I'm saying. So first, okay, listen to my explanation of what has just happened, what you're seeing, what is hearing. And he turns to a prophet. And who's the prophet? It's Joel. Joel, you know, Joel the prophet. And he says, Joel talked about this. Once again, this is God's prophet, Joel. He's saying, in the last days, you know, these things are going to unfold. You know, these things are going to happen. And so he's saying, basically, he's telling these Jews. This is not the Gentiles. These are the Jews. He's telling the Jews, God is fulfilling your prophet Joel. The prophet you read before from your Old Testament scriptures, God right now is fulfilling that. Yeah. And by, by saying in these last days, he's identifying we are in the last days now. It is here. And in these last days, he says, the Spirit is going to uh, accomplish some things, and he's going to manifest himself, and so the Spirit is being poured out. God says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on mankind. And he talks about the various ways that he's done, done that. And so what happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost with the immersion of the Holy Spirit and receiving of power is the beginning of of this fulfillment. It is, is it the completion of this fulfillment? Is, it, is this prophecy fully com- fulfilled in Acts 2? No. How do we know that? Okay, you got, you got the Spirit working later, but also talks, think about there in verse, verse 17, because in Acts, in Acts 2, who's immersed with the Holy Spirit and therefore have power? Who's, who's the who that's baptized with the Spirit? It's the apostles. The 12 apostles are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And yet the prophecy says, the prophecy says, God will pour out his Spirit on mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Are there any women prophesying in Acts 2? No. Will there be sisters in Christ who will be empowered to prophesy? Yes. Can someone tell me, you know, the father of of some daughters that were prophets? Philip. Philip, who's introduced in Acts 6. Later on, near the end of Acts, you have talks about Philip. He's someplace else now, and he talks about their daughters have prophesied. And so, What's happening here in Acts 2 is not the complete fulfillment of all the things that God foretold. It is the beginning. He says, we are in the last days. And God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And today it's starting. And it's going to continue to be fulfilled. As you see, for example, when Paul talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how those gifts of the Holy Spirit are used in the churches you know, that's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The, you know, and you're talking about, that's all part of this prophecy. But the point is, you think about, you break it down, time's running out. You break it down, what happens here, he talks, okay, first of all, with the outpouring of the Spirit, there is revelation. 
There's the revelation from God. That's what the, the prophecy and the vision, the dreams would be. Would be God revealing you know, something. But then you've got confirmation by the Spirit. And that's what you have when he talks about, okay, and God says, I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below. So there's going to be revelation that comes with the Spirit in the last days. There's going to be confirmation with the Spirit and tacked on all of this. And this is, what the, this is the objective of it. The objective is not just to have demonstration of power. The objective is verse 21. That's the goal of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the goal of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together is so that it shall come in the last days that whosoever or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's, what, that's what this is all about. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission according to Luke? He says, the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit The testimony of the death and burial of Christ and the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness. The Spirit's work is intricately connected to that. This has happened so that salvation can be attained by all who call upon the name of the Lord. And that's, you know, and like I say, we're going to run out of time here, but let me just kind of, you know, kind of make some summation statements. With the rest of, of Peter's sermon, you know, you have the explanation. You know, with the rest of Peter's sermon, what you have is you have the testimony uh, of Christ being, you know, the, the anointed one. Let me move this forward so you can at least see that. And he, he starts off, for example, with the idea of some facts, just some, some historical facts that they... They're all no, no, no. First of all, you, know, you all knew Jesus, <laughs> and you knew what kind of man he was, and you knew what he did. All right. So he talks about the public ministry, and then he says, "Okay, and you also know about what happened to him. You all know that this Jesus of Nazareth, this Nazarene, that you crucified him, and you did so through wicked men." But then he goes on and says, but he says, but this death is by God's determined plan and now God's raised him up and he's done so according to the scriptures. See, go back to what Jesus said. The scriptures where it must be. And so Peter is basically expounding on this. And then so he's gonna basically then say, okay, the prophets foretold us this. And we're not gonna be able to go into this, but uh, you know, we're gonna pick up there you know, Lord willing, next week. But go ahead and do the next, the next lesson as we just kind of continue the flow of the work of the apostles as God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit work through them to carry out this great plan of salvation. Thank you very much for your attention and your comments.